Five minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nachum Siegel. Welcome to a Friday Erev Shabbos. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program.
Oh 
J.M. in the A.M. Good morning and welcome to 91.1 FM, 90.1 FM in the Catskills, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial and around the world on the web. It's J.M. in the A.M. dot O.R.G. It's Friday morning on this May 9th, the 9th of E.R., smack in the middle of our Sphere format on a J.M. in the A.M. Friday uh, day number tw- today is day number twenty-four in the counting of the Omer. Is that basically halfway? Yeah, almost. Day number twenty-four in the counting of the Omer. That would be um, three weeks and three days. If you forgot to count last night, make sure to do so sometime today. Again, today is day number twenty-four in the counting of the Omer. It's Arab Shabbos Parshas Bahar, candle lighting seven forty in the New York area. Many synagogues begin earlier. Make sure you know when things start where you are. Sunday is Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. And a special mazel tov to uh, those who study the Talmud at the rate of one page per day. Because you are completing Meseches Beitza and moving on to Meseches Rosh Hashanah. Mazel tov to those who are making uh, a siyum completing uh, the current Masechta. 55 degrees outside with 97% humidity. Winds are calm. Showers today with a high of 61. Showers late tonight, low 58. Scattered thunderstorms for tomorrow. A high temperature, 81 degrees. Are we really hitting 81? Are we really hitting 81? Wow. 75 in Yerushalayim, 55 here in Jersey City as we say good morning at JM in the AM. You heard a bunch of Leif Tahar in there. You heard Yamamai. You heard Shabbat and Gilo. You heard their Lulei Hamanti. You heard the Shabbos Comes Alive CD with their Shabbos medley, their opening medley. And Regesh with Modani opening things up as we say good morning. Well, about a half hour from now... Our guests from Nachal Charedi are scheduled to be in studio here at JM in the AM. This should be a very interesting conversation. We'll, I think this is the first time that we're going to have any sort of in-depth interview about what Nachal Charedi does uh, and uh, the role that they uh, fill in the um, in the state of Israel. But now, because of the tense situation, if you can call it that, with the uh, whole situation in Israel regarding who does army service and for how long, etc., etc., etc. It should be very interesting having Nachal Haridi representatives in our studio. Scheduled for today, uh, Rabbi Tzvi Klibanow, who founded Nachal Haridi, and Sergeant Netanel Silverman, Sergeant Netanel Silverman, is a schedule to be in studio as well. So we'll welcome we'll welcome both of them into our studio just after seven o'clock this morning here at JM in the AM. Very much looking forward to it. Of course, Friday means our weekly update will take place. That'll happen about seven forty this morning with Malcolm Honline. I am told Jay Booksbaum's gonna check in with us in the eight o'clock hour. 
We have we have a mazel tov to the kosher wine community. We'll explain that coming up, and plenty more happening here on a Friday at JM in the AM. Naomi Nachman is, um, I believe, is going to be presenting a program today um, on our stream right after JM in the AM. Uh, officially from down under, it is a uh, a a program she recorded while being in Australia a few days ago. And she'll be touring the Sydney Jewish community. You'll hear from our big kitchens, Rabbi David Slavin, Tommy Rev from A Lot at Hadassah Kosher Butcher, Rabbi Aaron Groner from the Australia New Zealand Kashrus Authority. Naomi speaks with all of them from down under, coming up between 9 and 10 this morning on our stream right after JM in the AM. And, of course, then a full day, an incredible day on the stream of Erev Shabbos elections in our Sphere format. Uh, make sure to be tuned in all day long. There is no better way to prepare for Shabbos simple as that. Great weekend programming, by the way, on our stream, including Executive Assistant Avrami with Saturday Night Siegel tomorrow night at 10 p.m. Eastern Time, and Matis with another great live installment of JM Sunday, 7 a.m. Eastern Time on our stream at jmintheam.org. You can catch all of that during our weekend programming at jmintheam.org. Friday morning on this day 24 in the counting of the Omer, Erev Shabbos again candle lighting at 7.40 as um, we continue at 91.1 FM, 90.1 FM in the Catskills, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial and around the world on the web, jmtheam.org.
with a, uh, an amazing array of Arab Shabbos selections in hour number one on this Friday morning. It's the 9th of May and the 9th of Iyar. It's day 24 in the counting of the Omer, and this is Erev Shabbos Parshas Bahar. Rabbi Yudin will address the uh, Torah portion at about 8.15 this morning. Candle lighting at 7.40 later on. 7.40 if you... Uh, a lot of synagogues begin earlier than that if you're... Uh, Make sure you know when things start where you are. That's what I meant to say. Make sure you know when things start in your community. Sunday is Mother's Day. We say happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. 7 o'clock in the morning on a Friday, Erev Shabbos. And this is America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard and listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial and around the world on the web, jmnam.org. Right after our newscast, right after the Galitzal newscast, we'll introduce Rabbi Tzvi Klibbenau, who's the founder, one of the founders of Nachal Haredi, and Sergeant Natanel Silverman, 
a member of Nachal Haredi. They are here in the United States until Monday night. They are here this morning at JM and the AM. And aside from learning about this fascinating group within the Israeli army, maybe they could shed some light on the uh, the conflict, the discussion, the constant discussion between our uh, brethren in the state of Israel on the topic of army service and the religious community. 55 degrees. We've got showers today with a high temperature of 61. Showers late tonight. Low 58 and scattered thunderstorms tomorrow with a high temperature of 81 degrees. Yerushalayim is at 75. We're at 55 here in Jersey City with a reminder that Naomi Nachman, with a program that she recorded in Australia while she was down under, she comes up at 9 o'clock right after JM and the AM with Table for Two. And then our Arab Shabbos mix continues all through the day right here at JM and the AM. Amazing programming even during the weekend here at jmandtheam.org. Don't forget tomorrow night at 10 p.m., Avrami hosts Saturday Night Seagull starting at 10 o'clock Eastern Time. That will be repeated on Sunday during our program schedule. And Sunday morning, Matis hosts yet another amazing live edition of JM Sunday. We emphasize that because he's always done it, never has missed a show. And uh, he'll be doing that uh, 10 a.m., excuse me, 7 a.m. Eastern Time this coming Sunday on the stream at jmtheam.org. And that does include a newscast in English, which I know is very attractive to everybody, or to many people, I should say who um, like to hear news from Israel in the English language. News from Israel in Hebrew is next. Galei Tzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast for a Friday follows next. We say Boker Tov from JM in the AM. הסופר עמוס עוז יוצא בחריפות נגד מבצעי פשעי השנאה נגד ערבים. תג מחיר ונוער הגבעות הם כינויים מתוקים סחריניים למפלצת שהגיע הזמן לקרוא לה בשמה. קבוצות ניאו-נאציות נפגעות. אין שום דבר בעולם שהניאו-נאצים באירופה עושים והקבוצות האלה לא עושות פה. למיעוט. כך עוז באירוע קבלת שבת בתל אביב, באירוע נכח גם חבר הכנסת רובי ריבלין, המועמד לנשיאות, שאמר בתגובה לכתבנו שמואל מוניץ, אסור להשוות. אני מבין את מחאתו, המחאה הזאת צריכה להיות בימין הרבה יותר גדולה, אבל יחד עם זה אין שום דבר להשוות בטרגדיה שאנחנו נמצאים בנו בין פלסטינאים לישראלים, את מדינת ישראל, את חייליה ואת העושים למען ביטחונה לאנשים שהם... חלילה, דומים לנאצים או ניאו-נאצים. הבוקר התגלו כתובות נאצה נגד ערבים על דלת בית פרטי ברובע המוסלמי בעיר העתיקה בירושלים, וכתובות נגד ישו רוססו על קיר סמוך לכנסייה הרומנית בעיר. תושב חולון נעצר בחשד שכלא את אשתו וילדיו במשך שנה והתעלל בהם. הוא חשוד שהרעיב אותם ואנס את אשתו באיומי סכין. כתבתנו שרון פולבר שמעה את רב פקד רונן שמרי, ראש לשכת החקירות במרחב איילון. בחקירה מגוללת הבחורה על התעללות במשך השנה האחרונה, התעללות נפשית ומינית שמבצע בן זוגה, בא ובילדים. האישה היא תיירת בארץ מאוזבקיסטן, הגיעה לכאן לפני כשנה, הובאה על ידי בעלה, שגם הוא הגיע לארץ בשנת 2007. סוזן רייס, היועצת לביטחון לאומי של ארצות הברית, מדגישה בתום ביקורה בארץ, נמשיך להשקיע בביטחון ישראל. And Every American dollar spent on Israel's security 
is an investment in protecting the many interests that our nations share. מחויבות ארצות הברית לביטחון ישראל בלתי מעורערת, אומרת רייס ומוסיפה, כל דולר אמריקני שמנותב לביטחון ישראל הוא השקעה שנועדה להבטיח את האינטרסים המשותפים שלנו. את הדברים אמרה רייס במהלך ביקור בבסיס פנמחים, ומביאה כתבתנו עופרי אשל. בית הדין של איגוד הכדורסל החליט להקל בעונשו של שחקנה של מכבי תל אביב, סופוקליס שחורציאניטיס, שהורחק משבעה משחקים לאחר שהתפרע בדרבי התל אביבי. בעקבות ערעור של מכבי הוחלט להרחיק אותו לשישה משחקים בלבד, והקנס הכספי הופחת לחמישים אלף שקלים. כתבתנו שרון יעקובוביץ' מזכירה שמאז התקרית האלימה, סופו לא שותף בארבעה משחקים. תחזית מזג האוויר, עלייה קלה בטמפרטורות, הלילה בהיר וקריר. ולסיום, מטיילים שימו לב, דובר צה"ל מוסר כי לנוכח השיטפונות בימים האחרונים קיים חשש לסחף מוקשים באזור הערבה והנגב התיכון. מטיילים בנחלים ערבה, תמר וחיון מתבקשים לצעוד אך ורק בשבילים המסומנים ולא לחצות גדרות. כמו כן, הציבור מתבקש שלא לגעת בעצמים החשודים כמיקוש, להתרחק וליידע את כוחות הביטחון במקרה של זיהוי. אלה החדשות שעורכת טלי חזקאלי, בצוות בת רווה ואבי כהן. J.M. and the A.M. on the Zerif Shabbos Parshas Bahar, candle lighting at uh, 7.40 uh, later on today. A lot of synagogues begin earlier. Make sure you know when things start where you are. Well, Nachal Charedi is uh, one of the most amazing stories in the state of Israel. And uh, we'll explain what it is. For those of you not familiar, we will get an explanation of what Nachal Charedi is and how long they've been around. Uh, Rabbi Tzvi Klibenau is among the founders of Nachal Charedi, and he is visiting us at JMAM this morning. Good morning to you. Good morning, Nachal. And Sergeant Etanel Silverman is a member of Nachal Charedi, serving in the Israeli army, and he visits us as well this morning here at JM and the AM. Good morning to you. Boker Tov. Boker Tov. Nachal Charedi is how old at this point? It was founded when? We just celebrated our 15th anniversary. It's 15 years already. Unbelievable. And essentially, um, let's do this in a, uh, in a summarized fashion for our listeners who may not be familiar. Nachal Charedi is, how would you describe it? Nachal Charedi is, a, first of all, is a street name. Uh, the actual uh, f- army unit in the army is called Netzach Yehuda, right. which today is... Uh, Uh, consists of about 1,400 soldiers, including a fighting battalion and an educational component and uh, uh, actually a number of uh, uh, positions for young men that are not able to be combat soldiers. But uh, Nachal Haredi provides an environment in the Israeli army where a young man who comes from the Haredi community has a lifestyle from the Haredi community is able to perform his military service as a combatant without compromising on any religious issues. Right. Uh, and one would have to say, although it may be unfair to ask you this question, one would have to say that, it has, that if that is its goal, it has been a success in the last 15 years. There's no question in my mind that Nacharedi has, has been a success, yes. Um, just to uh, give everyone a taste of the environment in which it was founded, it was not... It was not very easy to go ahead and start Nachal Haredi, Netzach Yehuda, right? No, not at all. 
There were a lot of people, would you say, opposed or critical or skeptical or all of the above? I think the word is vehemently opposed. Really? Yeah, the first four years were were very, very difficult years. Attacks on our Rabbanim, physical attacks, verbal attacks, uh, busloads of people to the front doors of the Rabbanim to uh, ask the community to throw them out. We, we had a very difficult first four years. So what's going on now in Israel is is nothing compared to what you went to 15, through 15 years ago. Right. As a matter of fact, the, the short little spurt that we saw about uh, a year ago where there were incidences of... Uh, of people in from Meyasharim that right. were chasing, uh, you know, in uniform, we actually uh, sent some shivers down our spine because it, it was a little bit reminiscent of what we had gone through in the beginning. I, I personally think that that's something which, you know, is uh, not a not a something which is a, will continue, but something right. which is here and there. But we did have very very difficult years in the beginning, and two things had to happen, Nachum. The first thing that had to happen was that the Haredi community had to understand that the Nachal Haredi, or the, the Netzach Yehuda, uh, which became a battalion, right. was uh, a formidable force for the IDF, not a ploy, not something to make ki'ilu that their Haredi used Right, to exempt something. oneself from army exactly. service, essentially. That, right, and as soon as... And, and that took time. That really took time, because it doesn't happen overnight. You... you you form a, a I shouldn't say exempt. I should say to get it over with, to get right. your army service over with, right? right? right. Just go in, make believe you're doing something, and, and then you're right. ready to go to the workforce. Exactly. We started with 30 boys. It took a few years. It grew to a battalion. Right. So that was the first thing. I assume the second thing was rabbinic uh, support, right? You, you needed the rabbis, even the ones that were with you from the beginning, to be vocal about it, I would guess. Right. Uh, you needed them to be vocal in a positive way. Right. And uh, the other real component was uh, that... People had to be convinced that the environment that we talked about, that the army committed to, was would be was, was right. would be maintained exactly. Right. That it's a kosher environment. Right. Uh, there were demonstrations where people uh, stood up and, and, and fantasized about what was going on, right. and there was and spread was, rumors exactly. And, right. and I, so it had to be proven once. Once boys came back and told their parents what was really going on, and it right. was a real environment. Those two things uh, led the way for Rabbi Tzvi Klibenau is here. Um, would you say that you've been able to maintain that commitment for everybody? In other words, is Nacha Haredi religious enough for everyone, essentially? I know there are exceptions, you know what I'm saying. But but basically, anybody from the religious community in Israel who would come to Netzach Yudah would feel comfortable there, essentially, based on the way they've grown up or the requirements that their their family you know, has given them over the years. Would, would, would that be a good general statement to make? I know there are exceptions, but would it be a, 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 an accurate general statement to make that it basically gets 99% of them into, into a comfortable environment? I would say that our goal is to, is to create an environment that will allow any young Haredi man that decides that he wants to serve in the army to serve in this environment, which will be kosher. It's... Uh, it's not a, a simple task. Right. The army is not a simple place, even with right. all the even special with all conditions. The accommodations, right. That's right. And it also depends upon the type of boys that you're recruiting. 
the goal of Nachal Haredi is, is not to take boys that are learning in yeshiva out of the yeshiva system. Right. God forbid. That's only according to the rumors. <laughs> only according to the rumors, <laughs> right. Uh, we, we, are, we believe that a boy sitting in, in, in yeshiva and learning is learning for Klai Yisrael. Klai Yisrael needs that boy learning for the Hemshech of, of, of Klai Yisrael. Correct. For a boy that doesn't find his place within the walls of the Beis HaMedrash, and once upon a time, that boy had no path for success. Right, couldn't excel anywhere. Nowhere. He was, uh, what do we say, between a, a rock and a hard place. Yeah, or, or, or between the cracks, where he just between falls through, and that's the end of it. Between the cracks, where he falls through, exactly. Nachal Haredi, for these boys, is, is a Hatzalah, and it's a Hatzalah for everybody. It's a Hatzalah for their parents. It's right. a Hatzalah for the boys. So I'm, I'm sorry for always interrupting. It's usually the indication that I'm very interested in the topic. Um, so which rabbis, and you don't have to name them, but w- were there some, even in those first four years, that were very vocal on your behalf? And would it have been impossible to continue without that vocal support? There were rabbis that, uh, that did give us uh, support in the initial time, uh, the initial period. What happened was even the rabbis that did, did give us support after the word got out that Nachal Haredi was actually starting and the... Right, the word on the street the word altered and, and, there. And the vehement uh, opposition right. started. So how a lot of them pulled back. So you were able to continue because of which... Of what moral support? Because of parents, because of uh, community members who were not rabbis, because of some rabbis. What, what allowed you to get through that initial period? Uh, tacit support. Simple as that. In other words, we know... Everyone's saying it's terrible, but telling you, keep going. That's right, exactly. How do they say, still hate, right. quietly, just don't don't make a lot of noise, but keep on doing what right. you're doing. Well, we, that's what they always say about the English Talmud, right? It's horrible, but quietly they'll say it's the best thing in the world. Let people continue to spread the word of Torah through it, that right. type of thing. Right. Rabbi Tzvi Klibenau is here. Uh, sergeant Natanel Silverman is here as well. You became a sergeant when? A year and two months ago. And how long have you been in Nachal Haredi? Two and a half years. And um, did it give you an opportunity to excel? Definitely. You're able to become what among the, I mean, would the Army recognize you and some of your colleagues as top soldiers or top members of the battalion? How would they classify you at this point? Definitely, definitely. The Army recognized it. I myself won a few awards for uh, best in unit, best in the class, uh, things of those sort. And throughout Israel, I could excel now. I could go out, get a job. And all I have to say is I was a fighter here or a fighter there, and they respect it and recognize it. You know, I read Joel Chasnov's book about being in the Israeli army, which I can only somewhat recommend because it's very graphic. But the training that he describes in there is insane. Is the training in your battalion also classified as insane by American Jewish young man standards? (laughs) Uh, probably, yeah. It's, it's uh, a very it's tough... It's extremely tough. It's extremely tough. I mean, to the point where when you're presented with it, you wonder whether you'll be able to do it. Like, it's just... It's one of those things where psychologically you have to overcome it and... Yeah, for sure. You uh, you also learn that you're able to accomplish anything that you put your mind to. Like, uh, if they were to tell you at the beginning, this is what training's about, you would, you would go home and that's right. it. On paper, you would never sign up... You would never be able if to If you knew what your commander would ask you to do in the first few weeks, right? Right, not just not just from the beginning. If they told you that morning, oh, we're going to have to run 10 kilometers today, you, you would say, that's it. But they tell you that you have to run four or five, and then just <laughs> in the middle of the run, they, they, continue, work their you way know, up they just ten. pull you along the way. So you, could, wor- you so, could you could run 10 kilometers with what on your back? How many pounds of or kilos of material on your back? A vest, a helmet, 
water. I mean, but we could be oh. talking about what? 20, 30 pounds of stuff? Yeah. Easily, right? Yeah. And you'll run those 10 kilometers, we'll which I guess is equal to somewhere over 15 miles, right? Something like that, or around 15 miles, something like that. It's the opposite? The, by the way, right. Oh, it's, it's the opposite? About, it's about six miles. About six, six miles. Yeah. <laughs> <There>. <laughs> now you know what my expertise is in, or not in. All right, so about six miles, and you're running with all this, and you're, and it's just part of a regular training day. Yeah, sometimes running, sometimes uh, conquering a mountain, conquering a field, you right. know, that they'll teach you how to, how to navigate through. What has been the most difficult thing for you to do? And I'm not referring to training now. Have there been assignments or, you know, we, we've heard about Nachal Haredi or the Netzach Yehuda Battalion being involved in anti-terror uh, practices. I mean, what, what, what were among some of the most difficult things that you participated in? I myself have participated in many missions, many uh, nightly arrests, uh, many raids in different cities and towns throughout the Shomron. Um, I've been shot at a few times in Janine. I've been, I've gotten multiple cocktails thrown at me plenty of times in, in uh, Hummer patrols and along the gate that separates uh, Palestinian villages and Israeli Shavim. Um So Netzach Yehuda members are at the same degree of risking their lives as any other soldier in Israel. I would say even more so because uh, we've been we've Netzach Yudah has been entrusted to Janine and Tulkarim. It's the that's the your two, region. That's our region. That's probably the two hottest cities in the whole country. And uh, most it's like Chabad getting Siberia, right? Yeah. <laughs> you guys get Janine. <laughs> so most most units move around throughout Israel. Uh, they move. Gizras, they move areas every few months. And Netzach Yudah has been in Janine since 2008. Um, I think that's based on our performance, and the government is just like, all right, we gave it to them, they know how to deal with it, let's not switch that up. And uh, Nachal Khredi soldiers have a lot, a lot of action. Based on, based on our area. Do you take a lot of English-speaking non-Israelis, or are, are people like the sergeant now Israeli? Like, how does that work? We take a... Uh, conglomerate of young men that uh, make up the battalion. I would assume the majority of them native Israelis. The majority native Israelis and a certain percentage, maybe 8%, are machal boys right. ah, that volunteer who from... Who can do their service with you. That's right. They come and specifically to do their service with us. Nisanel right. is, is one of those young men. We have boys from France, from Australia, from England. There is no question that if not for Nachal Haredi, there would be young men in Israel and other places who would never join the Israeli army. There's no question about it. No question about it. Because we have been told, or rumors have been... For Americans as well also. Right, understood. Rumors have been spread. (laughs) It it sounds like plenty of those have surrounded your unit since the beginning. Um, That that in reality, any boy that's an Ahacharedi would be in the army. And they they would have a more difficult or more uncomfortable time. But now, because Ahacharedi exists... They're able to go to a, a battalion like this. Untrue, untrue. Uh, the, the vast majority, if not for I would say ninety, maybe ninety-five percent, only are, are in the army because of Nachal. So what I just described might be three, four percent. Simple as that. Right. Which you'd have to expect, right? I mean, that you'd expect. Right. But if ninety-five percent are the way you just described, then obviously that's a great success. Right. I do want to. Yeah, add, please. I do want to add one thing, which is uh, very, very important to what Nisanel started to say. The Nachal Haredi is the only IDF battalion that has responsibility for two Arab population sectors in, in the entire IDF. To, to, to say usually it would be one. Usually it's one. 
they have a responsibility for, for two very, very, what we say in Hebrew, oyen. Rough very, neighborhoods. Very threatening neighborhoods. Right. Tulkarim and Janin. And Janin itself has 300,000 Arabs. It has 42 oyen villages surrounding it. And uh, Tulkarim is just uh, another very difficult area. And uh, what you touched upon, I think it's important to, to explain a little bit. Really, the, the job of the soldiers of the Nachal Haredi, they're part of a brigade called Kfir. And Kfir's uh, sisma, their, their code is defending the homeland. Right. So while many units are, uh, will be you know, rushed to different areas in time of crisis, the IDF realizes you have to make sure that the Arabs within Israel are kept under control. Otherwise, we'll really be in a problem. Right. It's the, it's the job of, uh, of Nachal Haredi, the Kfir Brigade in, in, um, in general, to make sure that that, that happens. So they really have a, a night job. They uh, they really have a night job. Their job starts in the evening because when can you go into a, an Arab village to uh, surround a house and, right. and, and, t- and take a prisoner, the person you're looking for? Only during the hours of the night. So they work with information from ODN. They'll get, they'll get exact information. Uh, Muhammad is going to be in this village, in this house, in this floor, in this room, from this time to that time. It's their job to go in. And get that. Uh, and get that. I, I would guess details about some of this you would not be able to say on the air, right? Details not, but as uh, as Rev Kopenow had said, how specific it is. It's amazing the how much you know the we get the, the intelligence that we get. Sometimes we've been on, on the entrance to a village, and we'd get a call, and they'd say, "Wait a few minutes, the guy's at the bed cafe." And then ten minutes later, we'd get a call. All right, he's back home. You could go get him. And that's that's what we work with every night. By the way, I want to mention that tomorrow night. Um, tomorrow night, right? Tomorrow night you're at the Golombic home in Lawrence, New York, correct? Correct. Tomorrow night, Nacho Haridi representatives, Rabbi Klibanow and uh, Sergeant Silverman, will be at the Golombic home in Lawrence, New York, making a presentation. You're all invited to attend. And Shabbos, tomorrow morning, they'll be visiting uh, Congregation H. Kodesh, which is in Woodmere. Uh, Shalashudis, they'll be spending at the unusual of Lawrence Cedarhurst. Information about all of this, and if you want to speak to Rabbi Klibanow during his short visit to the United States, which ends on Monday, so if you want to get in touch with him, uh, do so uh, soon. He's at 201-377-3575. Again, that's 201-377-3575. And you've explained to us in the past, it's been a while since you've been on the air, but you've explained to us in the past that obviously much of what we discussed is funded by the Israeli Defense Forces and the government of the State of Israel, but there are educational programs and other things that Nacha Haredi actually fundraises for, right? Programs that are part of Nacha Haredi that, that where the funding would never come from the Israeli government, correct? That's correct. It's important to understand because when we do come, and we come for two purposes, we come first of all to raise awareness about Nacha Haredi. Right. Nacha Haredi is not a given people don't really understand what it's all about. It really needs an education. Right. And I think this helped a lot, by the way, for a lot of people. Right. And uh, <clears throat> what we do is uh, the the government... Sorry. No <clears throat> I'm losing my voice. <laughs> <clears throat> the government um, supports the, the Netzach Yudah Battalion and all other soldiers of Netzach Yudah like they do in any other, any other unit. Right. Uh, there was a time many years ago where we did get some contributions to buy M6 tactical lasers, 
some Stinger uh, flashlights so that they could uh, check uh, Arabs at checkpoints. Uh, that's not uh, where we are. Uh, they're funded as any other battalion. What the Nachal Haredi organization raises money for is for everything above and beyond. It's the spiritual wraparound, which is really the heartbeat of Nachal Haredi. Right. Now, uh, we get funding from the uh, government through the Ministry of Defense, which covers, I would say, about 6-7% of our budget. We have a budget today close to a million dollars a year, and we get uh, about $60,000 a year from the, from the government. Right. We have done everything in our power to lobby the government, the politicians, the everybody we can we can reach out to to explain that we in order to do what we need to do, we need to be better funded by the government. There's a lot of promises. We haven't seen anything anything more than that today. What is the money used for? Which is the, the question that everybody asks as if this is a military unit, what do you need to raise money for? The Soldiers of the Nachal Haredi have two major transitions in their in their life at this time. One transition is the transition into the army, right. <clears throat> which is a difficult transition. These are boys coming from families that have no uh, battle heritage, no brothers, sister, uh, not sisters, uncles, right. cousins that that have been in the army, and therefore when they step into the army, it's a foreign environment for them. And a really difficult transition. They didn't grow up with the whole mentality. They didn't grow up right. with the mentality. And therefore, it's very important for them when they make this transition to have support of mentors that are in the, in the base. Now, it's, we don't come to give uh, lectures. We have a staff of uh, 15 uh, to 20 Rabbanim that are, visit the bases every day. We have close to 20 bases around the country today. Wow. And they, they go there to give chizuk to the soldiers. I would even say uh, that the, the role of our Rabbanim it, it just is in many, many cases to be the Abba and the Ima of these Chayalim. Right. Many of the Chayalim, as I said before, they don't have family support. Many of the Chayalim, and I'm sorry to say... Strained relationships. It's true, not strange relationships. Until you look at a soldier in his face and he tells you that when he went to Lishkata Giyus to recruit, he called his parents to tell them afterwards to enlist. Right. And following that, he called his parents, and they said, don't bother coming home. Right. Until you hear that from a soldier, you can't believe that something Are there a lot true. of those cases? It's a non-negligible amount of, of soldiers, yes. On many different levels. <coughs> All right, oh, right. Uh, different degrees. Different degrees of, of separation of from the family. Right. So one of the programs that we have is a uh, we have apartments for boys that can't go home. Right. Now, there are lone soldiers. There's a lone soldier status right. in the Israeli army. There's a lone soldier house, a Beit Chayal for right. these soldiers. That's not an appropriate environment for, for, for these them, young men. Right. And we're certainly, even if the boy <coughs> would think that it is, we're certainly not going to right. support. You take support responsibility. We take for responsibility them. for that. Therefore, we raise money <coughs> for these um, apartments that, uh, that a boy, I'll tell you what the, what, the, what the issue is. These boys are technically uh, lone soldiers. But they're not, they're not by definition, in other words. They have families. They have families. Right. We, we, I always say we created a new definition of a lone right. soldier. In the Israeli army. Alone with a family. A lone soldier <laughs> is somebody that doesn't have parents. Right. A lone soldier in the Nacha Haredi is somebody that has parents, but he doesn't have a home. Right, exactly. It's, it's sad. So we obviously. have a rabbinic mentoring program. Right. It's the logistics. It's cars, rabbonim right. that go all over the country to the bases. 
It's a, there are bait, uh, apartments for these chayalim. We have a Karen Chatanim program. Wow. Where when a boy gets married and he doesn't have the wherewithal to, to set up a house, we buy appliances for him to help him set up his house. And more than that, the second transition, which is a transition from the army back into civilian life, is the other difficult transition because they don't have the communal support or the family support. Right. They need to get jobs. They need to get training. So what we did about three years ago, we started an alumni program. I took alumni, Bogrim of ours, and today they are a Tovet. They're an address for these young men. They help them prepare for interviews, prepare to help them get jobs and help them return and integrate into society. Because, and take place because in the by now, how many have come through Nachal Haridi over 15 years? Over 15 years, over 6,000 young men. Uh, can I assume, not to get too personal, can I assume things are cool with your family? Yes. Baruch Hashem. I have a great relationship. They're supportive, but as well, I'm a Chayal Badid. A, a, a lone soldier officially. A lone soldier officially. Right. I also, um, for an American, for an American to go is something interesting. I had an older brother who went as well. So for two brothers wow. from America to go, that's uh, two brothers at big. all is something. Right. And mm-hmm. Imagine that from the United States. Um, uh, again, the uh, the uh, team of Rabbi Klibanow and Sergeant Natanel Silverman will spend uh, Shabbos in the five towns. If you'd like to speak with them off the air and support the amazing work of Nacha Haridi, they gave a, a little a thumbnail description of some of the programs you can support. 201-377-3575, 201-377-3575. Before we wrap up, and obviously you're invited back again, I, I've been s- saying on this program for close to a week that you'd help shed some light, Rabbi Klibanow, on this relationship between... Uh, the government of Israel, the yeshiva world of Israel, and how they view army service and what's being demanded or not demanded of them. We can, and I like to always point this out, we can establish that the government of the state of Israel is the greatest funder of Torah education in the history of the world. That's number one, correct? Correct. Um, Also, I think that when reasonably approached, the majority of the members of government, if not all, when reasonably approached on all these issues, they tend to be a lot more easier to deal with than when they're approached in a very combative manner. Would you agree with that? Please. Oh, but I'm at, well, the, the question is that it, it seems to me that when there's a combative relationship between the uh, religious community and the government of the state of Israel on this issue, let's say, of army service, which has been in the headlines now for months already, it seems that when there's a combative atmosphere... Nothing gets done. And when there's some type of, I don't know, sit-down meetings, face-to-face, peaceful encounters, it seems like both sides tend to be more reasonable. Would that be an accurate statement? Let me tell you what we we did over the past year and how we dealt with a lot of these um, meetings that were going on within the Knesset to create this new law uh, that was put into place. We first of all, we are totally apolitical with nothing to do with any Understood. political, right? We we are a service provider. You're doing your job. We do our <laughs> job. A boy decides he wants to come to the army. We're there to help him be matzliach b'chayim. Right. We're there to help him be successful in life. And now he has to choose to come. Right. right. <laughs> now, but what we have done, and we have told, uh, I did attend many of these sessions as a onlooker. And we had had the opportunity, and a number of times I brought Bo Grimm to these Knesset sessions, alumni, to, to tell them that what they're, what they're really doing is detrimental to the, to the recruitment of soldiers to Nachal Haredi and in general for Haredim. P- people have to. You under- suffered in terms of attendance 
because of what seems like a crackdown of the Israeli government. Bugi Alon, just I saw it uh, two days ago in the uh, online, that he said that uh, in general, uh, the recruitment of Haredim to the entire army is down 50% in the last recruitment, and Tanakh Haredi, I think, 30%. Now, now let, me, let me explain why that's, so, why that's so important. Tremendous change has taken place in Israel over the past 10 years. We are not in the same place. We were not only with Nachal Haredi, we have we have Shacha, which is a program for Avrechim that want to go out to work. We have this this national service. There are tons of universities giving uh, degrees degrees to law degrees, all sorts of degrees to Haredim. We're not where we were, and therefore, what they need to do is very simple: let nature take its course. You can't change things overnight, and and the contrary, it's going to backfire. Let things encourage, create new programs. The natural numbers will grow. And and the the criteria that they set forth, which the Haredi community doesn't want to adhere deal to, with, right, right here to, but those numbers are not numbers that won't even uh, in a natural growth. Those numbers are met in a very easy way. To 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 think that you're going to force people into the army, it's 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 the wrong way to do things. Simple as that. You think that if there would be no new law, and if the last year would have gone the way you just suggested then a Haredi attendance in the army would have gone up, not this downturn that you just described. Based on a trend that happened in the right, last few years. Right, a trend that would have continued up, not just with Nachal Haredi, but in general, right? You know, that they would have chosen whatever program they want. And in, and in addition to that, there would have been more ways to implement, I don't know, I guess educational programs right. and eventually right. get... But, but, but what about this whole restriction of not being able to get into the workforce if you... Have not served in the army. Wouldn't that be? Wouldn't that still be a big roadblock to getting people to, you know, eventually support their families through regular work? But you see that the the government is 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 uh, is taking those restrictions off in many places. Right. You can do national service and go to work. Right. You don't have to do the army in order to go to work. Right. It's not it's not the, the same stringency as it once was, and all they need to do is to in Hebrew we say is dirbun, to encourage to create new paths. It, th- things are changing and things will happen. There's no reason to force it, and it's just work. It'll just work against them. Uh, doesn't some of the rhetoric bother you? When I mean, you, you're a rabbi and you're very familiar with plenty of people in the Haredi community, obviously. Uh, when, when you heard people make accusations that the government of the state of Israel was behaving like some of the enemies of the Jews of past centuries have behaved, I mean, that, that must bother you. That must right. The, that rhetoric, I would assume, you felt was inappropriate. Well, when I hear p- people in the politics, politicians say that they have uh, now corrected the historical injustice, uh, I don't really believe that's... Uh, <laughs> you don't think that's good either? I don't think that's good so either. Bo- so you accurate. would agree then that both sides, um, in, in, both sides increase the heat of their argument a little too much? It would, the, the, the tactics on both sides, you say, probably could have been mm. in a more peaceful manner. Basically what I said to right. begin with, right? That if there was more... Dialogue. More give and take, more dialogue, more peaceful negotiation. It could have been handled a lot differently. I think that's very true. Right. Well, I thank you for visiting us and uh, continued success. And this downturn uh, is affecting you in, in the same trend? I mean, there are a lot less Nacha Haredi inductees now oh, at the compared la- to a year ago? The last recruitment, it's too soon to say about a year, but the last recruitment, there was a, there was a downturn. We actually, the government had made a decision to open up a second battalion uh, about six months ago, and they did two recruitments that they actually recruited 
almost twice the amount of soldiers that they had recruited uh, before. Right. That's what you have to do to open a new battalion. You have to open two companies instead of one company at each recruitment. They did that for two recruitments, and all of a sudden everything started to happen. Right. And, they, and that uh, this recent recruitment, the numbers dropped that they only, re- they only recruited one company. So I guess you would argue that the, the potential soldier... The, the 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 youngster who wants to go to the army, even sometimes uh, you know completely against his family's wishes, even that person uh, hesitated now to enlist because of the environment. That, that's correct. And you know uh, what I thought to myself just yesterday was uh, something that everybody should understand. A lot of people say, no, Nachal Haredi is not all Haredim. It's right. uh, it's like Hardal. We said right. right. Like we said it's not it's a Hardal Nikim. Hardal Nikim that Lumi. Now, what you've seen is that if, if you can have a downturn <laughs> like that because of, of the out, uh, outs, outspoken people in Nachal right. and that has an effect on recruitment, well, you see that there's a vast majority there which is uh, actually Haredi. Point well taken. Sergeant? Along with that, the, ki- the kid who hesitates to come, at the end, he's the one that's losing out. Like, right. he, he wants to come, right. but... He feels bad coming. Right. So he knows it's the best thing for his personal development, and you've for, proven right, that. For his, you've proven for his that he can excel well, right. at this, and the, the majority have excelled, in fact. You wanted to say yeah, yes. Yeah, Nachum, I think what's very important for our audience to understand is that, that Nachal Haredi is not only something important for the Haredi community. Nachal Haredi is important for the future existence of Klai Yisrael and Eretz Yisrael, for Medinat Yisrael. Nachal Haredi is all about building bridges. It's about building lives. It's about building an Eretz Yisrael, which, uh, which is the way, the way it's supposed to be. Right. If we believe the future of the Jewish people is in the state of Israel, you have to support what you're doing. You have to support what we're doing, 100%. And what we're doing, also people should understand, again, it's, we're not supplying so much the physical. Right. What we're doing is we're supplying, we're supplying the spiritual element. We're what, we, we put the Haredi'ut into Nachal Haredi. <laughs> right. You're also supplying uh, thousands of young men who are willing to risk their lives on behalf of the future of the Jewish people. That's You're true. sitting next to a sergeant who's been shot at, has had Molotov cocktails. I mean, somebody who wakes up every morning and is able to say, thank you, God, for giving me another day Absolutely. because it could have ended at any time. Absolutely. You, sh- you should continue to go, and all your comrades should continue to go with the blessings of the Jewish people from around the world. I mean, one, one, of the thing, one of the yeah. things we're giving out of the shuls is a uh, beautiful um, little card which has a tefillah for the Chayelei Tzal, and it has a picture of some of our soldiers on it. And, and you know, that's something which is uh, very important. People have to doven for all, so, all of our soldiers of, uh, of the IDF. They put their lines on the life every single day when we're sleeping in our homes safely and securely at night. It's because these young men, all young men of the, uh, of the IDF, are out there doing their job. And I believe that we're able to live in cities around the world because of their commitment in the IDF. Rabbi Klibbenau, I can't thank you enough. Uh, I remind everybody, uh, and, and Sergeant uh, Silverman as well, I remind everybody, Rabbi Klibbenau, uh, one of the founders of Nachal Haredi, and Sergeant Natanel Silverman will both be tomorrow night at the Golombic Home in Lawrence, New York. Shabbos, they will spend at Eish Kodesh tomorrow morning in, uh, in Woodmere. And there'll be Shalashudah's time tomorrow evening at the Young Israel of Lawrence Cedarhurst. They're here until Monday. If you want to speak with them and support their incredible work, you could dial area code 201-377-3575, 201-377-3575. Sergeant Silverman, you get the last word. All right, I'd just like to thank everybody who's listening, and I'd just like to thank the Five Towns Rockaway community for hosting us and hosting this event uh, along with uh, the different rabbis from the community schools, Rabbi Brown, Rabbi Billet, 
Rabbi Moshe Weinberger, Rabbi Feiner, Rabbi Hain, Rabbi Teitelbaum, to mention a few. A lot of, of great people out there. Yeah, a lot of great rabbis. And uh, then also in advance for anybody who would come out tomorrow night and anybody who is uh, going to partake in helping out and enabling this great organization. Phenomenal. Rabbi Klobina? Yeah, if we're talking about Hakar HaTov, which is a very important thing, so we have to give uh, give uh, Hakar HaTov to my board of directors from the Friends of Nachal Haredi, who are a very unique group of people that not only give of their time, but also give of their money. Mr. David Hagerod in L.A., Mr. Steve Rosedale in Cincinnati, and Henry Olinsky in Teaneck. These are people that are really involved in the Nachal Haredi, devoting a good part of their lives and their finances to the uh, future success of Nachal Haredi. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Nachal Haredi, our focus on a Friday morning weekly update. Malcolm Holmline is going to join us next. Plenty more coming up on a very special Erev Shabbos edition of JM in the AM. Shalom Aleichem, Malachi Asharei, Malachi Elyon, Mimelech, Malachi Amelachim, Akadosh Baruch Hu, Ay, Shalom Aleichem, Malachi Asharei, Shalom, Malachi Shalom, Malachi Elyon, me melech Malachi Hamelachi, Makadosh Baruchu. Boachem Shalom, Malachi Shalom,
J.M. in the A.M. Want to remind everybody that Heartbeats 2014 is coming up. It's a student-run production celebrating the arts. Heartbeats showcases the talented singers, dancers, and artists of uh, Mayanot Yeshiva High School. Proceeds of this year's event will go to Chabad's Children of Chernobyl, an organization dedicated to rebuilding the lives of those who were affected by the Chernobyl nuclear disaster and relocating them to Israel. Heartbeats will be happening May 20th. 7 p.m. at Beth Shalom in Teaneck, New Jersey. For information, contact our friends at Maya Note, uh, Chana or Mali at area code 917-504-9193. That's 917-504-9193. Weekly update in a second. want to take this opportunity to uh, thank our friends at JewishWorldReview.com who continue to enthusiastically recommend to their readers our incredible 24-hour live stream, which today, by the way, at 9 a.m. will feature Naomi Nachman with a program called Table for Two from Australia. She actually did the show from Australia this week. And uh, tomorrow night, Avrami will host Saturday Night Seagull beginning at 10 p.m. And Matis, of course, Sunday morning at 7 a.m. Thank you to our friends at JewishWorldReview.com. If you're looking for a zillion articles regarding uh, the Jewish world and uh, the world in general, that you can go and print out before Shabbos. You could spend an entire ream of paper <laughs> on printouts from JewishWorldReview.com. Uh, then go to the web at uh, at their site and enjoy. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations and joins us for the weekly update here on a Friday morning. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Oh, good morning to you. You know, our friends from Nachal Haredi were just here. I don't know if you were tuned in or not. Rabbi Tzvi Klibbenau and Sergeant Natanel Silverman are 
in the area. They're going to be spending Shabbos in the five towns. And um, <laughs> my takeaway from the conversation, in addition to many other things, is uh, how everybody does not implement a tefillah for the soldiers of Israel on a regular basis, whether it's every week or whatever the case may be. I, I don't know. It is uh, He described Sergeant Silverman, you know, who seems to be just a, just another wonderful soldier in the Israeli army, how on a daily basis he shot out Molotov cocktails coming his direction. He's trying to secure the area of Janine. You've described for us how difficult a task that is, and this happens now on a regular basis, not just when there are major raids and terror threats. Uh, it's just incredible, and uh, I'm sure you agree, but I just wanted to toss that out there to start things off this week. Well, first of all, I think it's still appropriate this week when you saw Yom Zikaron and uh, Yom Atzimut, and people tend to take for granted, and I have to compliment the people who in Flatbush organized the first time a uh, an event in uh, Stiebel, which was filled to overflowing. People were turned away. Hundreds were there? Hundreds. Four, five, at least 400, I heard wow. many more, but I think the room holds about 400 altogether. It was packed through the door, out the door, on the street, and many people just turned and left because they couldn't get in. And it shows that there's much more Hakar Satov recognition. You know, people think this is a quiet period, but 57 soldiers and security officers were killed in the last year, since the last Yom Atzmot, wow. Israel Independence Day. Fifty-seven families deprived of sons, fathers, brothers, cousins. We don't even think about the ramifications of all the families who are affected forever by the loss. And they're there to protect the Jewish people and the Jewish state. And I mean all the Jewish people. When Nacha Haredi, you know, is, is under pressure and you hear critics of coming from some extreme elements about it, they are on the front line. I just saw that they have been assigned to key posts in the Golan that they do intelligence work, that they they go out on some very serious missions, and there's the officers rave about them. And the you know the fact is that we take it for granted. We don't you know really appreciate the sacrifices that are being made, the the time that's being invested, the dangers that they encounter, and. At least one day a year we should, but we should remember it every day. And you just mentioned to me off the air, which is rare, we usually don't discuss topics off the air, but you just mentioned to me what you were involved with this week in terms of the um, uh, meeting on uh, uh, anti-Semitism in France. And sometimes, and I tried to make this point at the end of my conversation with them this morning, sometimes we forget that when we are able to live in freedom and in relative comfort, and again, you could describe France to us, and whether it's close to that or not in a minute, but when we are in a place like this, like here, uh, a lot of that is because of the strength of the Israeli army and the power of the state of Israel. We have to keep that in mind as well. Absolutely, and think what we would be without it. And you know, some say, well, the problems come because of Israel. No, the problems are because they hate Jews. They use Israel as an excuse. And in, and the situation in France, and we had the leaders of the CREP, which is the central body of the French Jewish community, are here this week, and we did a, a session last night at the French Embassy, uh, mission to the UN, um, with the head of the CREP and myself. Uh, and, and as I look more and more into the details about the current situation, and acknowledged fully today by France's leader, Jewish leaders, which was not always the case, that uh, 71% say they experience anti-Semitism in the media. Uh, 64% say they encountered it in the streets. 79% see graffiti and other 
you know, vandalism that is anti-Semitic. And 70% are fear of physical violence. This is not, uh, you know, a normal situation. It's not something to be dismissed. It's pervasive. And as I've discussed in the air many times, we talked about the hundreds of young Frenchmen who went there as Mohammed Mara fighters, the guy who killed the young Jewish children in the school in Toulouse, and father and, and soldiers later, the, the, that they're, they're fighting in Syria, and they're going to come back because they have French passports. They can get back into France, to the United States, to Italy, to England, to Ireland, to all of your countries of Europe, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, who are, going to, who are trained killers and are going to come back. And this, of course, worries them. The demographic imbalance, the, the extremism emanating from parts of the Muslim population, from the extreme right, and we, the European Parliament is going to have an election in the coming weekend. There's a great fear that between the Jobbik party in Hungary and Golden Dawn in Greece and the Pen in, in France and other parties in Holland and Belgium, that they could get 20, 25% of the vote in the, in the European Parliament. Wow. And, and he said that they could even be the number one party. And although they, they're careful, Le Pen's daughter, Marie, is, is uh, careful not to engage in anti-Semitism. But you, you know about the Quinell, this reverse swastika, right. which was started yeah, by this, the, the comedian, right. old comedian, who, who's now become a national figure, who has spread this into every realm. You see it at sports events. You see it at other uh, major public gatherings. Uh, they are they're now being more careful because they're subject to legal action. In, in Europe, you have libel and other laws that we don't have here. But the the pervasiveness of of this in the media and elsewhere, and they do tie it, of course, to events in the Middle East. But it's it stands on its own as as uh, reflective of events of the past, uh, where France became subject under the Vichy regime to and, and deported Jews and killed uh, many of them. Uh, killed as a result in, in concentration camps and elsewhere in France and, else, and outside. Um, we have to take these things seriously. And by the way, um, uh, you just in, in what you said about France, you spoke about how people, residents, Jewish residents, speak of vandalism and what they see, swastikas, I would assume, and things like that. Uh, and look how it was dealt with in our area. Um, just a few days ago, we had an incident in Brooklyn, New York, where where somebody was uh, arrested for uh, um, drawing swastikas on a, I think it was either a shul or school building. On several places, cars and schools. And you see how that's dealt with here. I don't know. I, this is not a knock on the French authorities. I don't know how it's dealt with there. But it does sound, based on the statistics you just cited, that it's much more commonplace there. It's more pervasive. But the, the national leadership, Hollande, the president, involves the new prime minister, uh, whose wife has Jewish... Uh, relatives um, have been very strong on this issue but a, a couple weeks ago two weeks ago three weeks ago 17,000 people marched against the government and all of a sudden hundreds of them turned the chant to France does not belong to Jews right. Jews do not belong to France and that the, the, the um, and while it wasn't all 17,000 nobody shut them up they were able to go and march in the streets of Paris yelling this uh, so the Ministry of the, of the Interior, Valls was, and now he's the Prime Minister, uh, have been very outspoken and active on it. It's, it's not a knock at the government uh, of France, uh, but local officials, others. It also, the events that you mentioned, remind us the importance of the cameras that are put up, and security cameras should be everywhere, at least so that people 
who want to carry out such acts of violence. I'm not talking about those who want to kill will do it in any event, but those who, who engage in the kind of graffiti and other acts of uh, uh, vandalism will be deterred. And by the way, and, and I know that uh, we don't always talk about local stuff, but uh, th- this is even bigger, and you, of course, with your association with the uh, security apparatus for our community would know something about it. Has the NY- If I understand this correctly, the NYPD is now giving up on a certain unit that used to either follow or pay careful attention uh, to, uh, to different uh, Muslim organizations in the city, you know, fearing that there might be terror attacks. Is that, is that now being relaxed? They're not going to pay as much attention to them? Well, we don't know. Uh, they, there was a unit that came under a lot of criticism, and uh, they uh, said that they were not going to be monitoring uh, Muslim institutions, although such actions have often encountered and enca- uh, uncovered right. and enabled them to address issues. It's not just uh, local, but that doesn't mean that the uh, surveillance or the, that the um, security operations don't continue. I know that Commissioner Bratton is certainly somebody very sensitive to these issues. So, I mean, did the did Jewish leadership respond to this, or they didn't need to respond to it, or it's not nearly as big a deal as some of the uh, media sources are painting it? Like, what what should be the reaction we'll out there? We'll have to see how it how it's carried out. But I, I don't. First of all, I don't think it's it's specifically a Jewish concern. This is a concern of security. It's like these good point fighters in uh, in Syria. Right. Good point. Although we make the point, it's not our point. Right. Understood. Right. Sometimes sometimes it's only people from our community who are out there saying anything. Though. Right. And 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 before we move on, I, I do want to get to some uh, other uh, things. But just you mentioned, of course, this incredible week. And it's such a spirited week between uh, Yom Hazikaron, Israel Memorial Day, and Yom Atzmut, Israel's 66th uh, birthday. Uh, did you get a chance, and I really don't know the answer to this, I'm not putting you on the spot, did you get a chance to see the torch ceremony and people like Ula Cohen and Miriam Peretz uh, as they were uh, as they were participating in this ceremony in Har Herzl this week? Yes, I saw some of them. Pretty amazing, no? It was remarkable, and the focus was on women this, right. this year, and yeah. Brady woman and others who were there being honored for their contributions. And we should just point out that, as, as we said during our Yomats Mode program this week, Miriam Peretz lost two sons and has become very high profile in Israel for just the incredible spirit that she continues with despite these, these unbelievable losses. It's remarkable. You, you don't know how it's a superhuman feat. Just incredible, Malcolm. Could you? I mean, this has been such. A, this has become such a uh, a story now, uh, rightfully so. The the terror group that's responsible for the kidnapping of these hundreds of girls in Nigeria. Could you? Dis- and, and I, I assume it's an anti-Christian uh, a terror attack, essentially, which I would love for you to expound on because sometimes we forget um, uh, what the Christian community uh, could be subject to in terms of terror out there. Uh, from Islamic rogue groups. Uh, could you explain who this terror group is and what their goals are? The goals are to take over Nigeria. It's a very powerful country, an important country, that, uh, uh, with uh, energy and other wealth. That This has been an ongoing battle, very long, has taken thousands and thousands of lives, and uh, with very little attention and the great frustration on the part of the people because they've appealed for for support from from the outside world and nothing comes. It's not the only such group, but it is uh, um, 
one of the, the most powerful and active groups is supported by Iran, we believe, and uh, get, still get weapons that uh, were flowing out of, uh, out of Libya. And the, the most high-profile thing they did, which is what has finally evoked a reaction, although they've done terrible things where they go into villages and massacre them. Literally mass murder. The whole, the whole community. And then, they, and then you have Christians who then go and respond. This is a Christian-Muslim uh, battle to a large degree, but the, they, they will wipe out, wipe out a village. This time they went and they kidnapped several hundred young girls from school, on the way to school, and now, by the way, have, have kidnapped even more, and they've divided up, so it's very hard for them to, to follow them to, to, to determine where these girls are. And the United States today sent some uh, experts there to try and help, and, and so did some other uh, countries uh, send uh, uh, troops, but minor numbers, not to, to actually carry out a, a uh, serious operation, but to, to try and be supportive of the efforts that are, that are there. And the, um, so, but this is part of the radicalization of, of in Africa, which gets so little attention. People don't you know, monitor this or don't, don't take it for granted. But this, or take it, the situation there is just this, the, what is and what should be there. So if 50% of the population of Nigeria is Christian, they, they're acting more in the areas that are majority Muslim against the Christians? No, they're acting in the areas that are majority Christian, and the, but do they they cross over and they have attacked um, uh, they have attacked Muslim uh, communities as well. Now you uh, so often, especially vis-a-vis Israel, because we know there's a Christian community in Israel. You've asked for the Christian community worldwide to react to terror attacks. Um, it, 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 it took more, it, it was more of a, well, I don't know what we would call it, a secular effort? <laughs> People like the uh, First Lady of the United States and others to bring this to the attention of everybody? Wouldn't you have expect more of an outrage from the Christian world on this? Or are you somebody who's in a leadership position hearing from them yet the media is not picking up what they're saying? Well, the media has, has reported on some of these things because they are so blatant and, uh, such horrific, uh, of such horrific scope. Right, but only recently. But, Yes, but only recently, and and the international leadership, the United Nations Human Rights Council, is too busy condemning Israel to look at the real problems. And, and that is not meant as a joke; it's very serious. Right, of course. All the resolutions deal deal with Israel and and over any perceived uh, action. And here you have this ongoing effort, and so finally, of late, you, you have some attention paid to it. But in many places in Africa, when you go there, meet with leadership, they tell us that. Uh, uh, that their big fear is Iranian influence, is the growth of the Muslim populations, is the convert, forced conversion uh, of Muslims, uh, of uh, people to Islam. Uh, and the, the uh, general attention span of the world is so short. Right. Here, this captured it because there are hundreds of girls, and then they took hundreds more. And right, the nature. Will, and, they, and they threatened to into right. The nature of the episode just finally got everybody's attention. But but you've told us in the past that that very often you hear from Christian leaders around the world who are frustrated that their that their uh, uh, their pleas go you know and, and fall on deaf ears. Is that happening here as well? Are are they active yet? The people are simply not picking up their message. Well, they don't have such strong advocacy groups here uh, fighting for them. But but we have spoken out. Many groups have spoken about the horrific. 
developments there. I mean, you can't be indifferent to the idea that these hundreds of little girls are being taken right. and being sold to slavery, being sold to, to horrific, uh, potentially horrific uh, situations. But the but it is not the isolated place in Africa. And and look, we see other developments. How about in South America? How who pays attention? Right. What uh, what is going on in Venezuela? What goes on in other countries where they are imposing more and more restrictive things? Where Iran plays a bigger role? Hezbollah's presence is is more and more in evidence. Right. I, I, I'm I'm programmed to think as I'm watching these stories from Nigeria. I'm programmed to think that somehow the IDF is going to go in and solve everything. <laughs> not, not to make light of it, but I don't know. That's <laughs> why what France did in, in in Mali was so important. Why it received so much uh, reaction. Uh, from uh, from the people there, I mean, th- you know, 300 people get killed in the latest attack in Nigeria, and and the world is is uh, is silent. The the State Department for a long time refused to to identify Boko Haram, which is that group, as right. a as a terrorist group, and uh, and people think that they're just wild they, uh, people. They had a a um, they have a clear plan. They're linked to Al Qaeda. They they were not put on the list of uh, of foreign uh, terrorist organizations for a long time, and uh, that may have limited the ability of America to to respond. And that you know that took place a few years ago. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, <coughs> Rockland County at ninety one. Point nine on the FM dial and around the world in the web, jmnam.org. Um, the um, Ehud Barak has uh, indicated, and it's been a while since we've spoken about the military potential against Iran, but let's get back into it. Ehud Barak has indicated that Israel could take out the Iranian nuclear threat in the fraction of one night. So number one, Mr. Honeline, is he accurate? And number two, as I've asked you a million times before, if it is accurate, why on earth would somebody say it publicly? Uh, it's a long night that he's talking about. But, <laughs> but, but, <laughs> oh, maybe he meant the fortnight. <laughs> but I, I think he's not wrong. I think really, I do think that Iran's ability, that, that Iran's system is is not that big. We we we, it is serious. It's spread out. It's not. Like OC Rock, it's not one wave, but you have to remember the power of the United States. What what facilities are available, and hopefully they will pull back the other aircraft carriers that advocated for a long time. But the you know their ability to in the United States' capacity to act in this thing with Tomahawk missiles raining down on it, and and it doesn't mean because you're not looking to take over the country, you're not trying to beat the army, you're trying to destroy the infrastructure. Of uh, of the key, key facilities now, a there are facilities we don't know. B there are, are at least some of these are underground and well protected, uh, sealed off, so that it's not going to be so easy. But the United States has super bunker buster bombs, and we have a lot of capacity. So only only can be done with American cooperation. I know that that's been somewhat obvious for for a long time, but but I've never heard you this. I don't know. I've never heard such promise in your voice about the potential of the military, whether with American cooperation or not, of Israel taking out Iran's nuclear capacity. And 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 might we ask then that if it was 
if it was able to be done unilaterally, Israel would have done it already. And now we have the greatest proof that they need American ingenuity and equipment in order to carry it out? No. I, I think Israel could carry it out. Israel has to make the decision when to carry it out. You've never spoken like this before, I don't think. But, no, I've always said that Israel has... That Israel has the capacity to carry it out as quickly as Barack is described? I, I didn't say that they could take it out in a fraction of a night. Right. He said the United States could. Right. Uh, and I think his message, uh, again, who knows what, why he wanted to say it. Maybe it's, you know, he has uh, access to information we don't. But I think he his message was, don't overcomplicate this thing. Don't think that we're facing such a strong opposition uh, that... Uh, uh, could there be dangers? Could there be loss of life? Absolutely. They have anti-aircraft. They have. It, it is a big power. I think a fraction of the night, as I said, may be an exaggeration. Right. And for Israel, it would be even more difficult. And the question is, how much do you take out? What is his definition of taking out? Does it mean we remove Fordo? Does it mean we remove the light reactor before it goes hot? Because once these facilities are hot, meaning producing, and you, you run the risk of massive leaks of radiation. Uh, so. You know, it, 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 you, and, and they have, of course, the ability to retaliate against the different sources, Israel, or uh, more likely, I think, Saudi Arabia and other places. See, months ago, you ha- you you would have described how it's in too many in too many or multiple facilities. I, that's what I said. So the question is, what he defines as taking right. out? Do you get every facility? So he might be referring to. Destroyed? to he might be referring to the the main one or the one that controls the rest or the no, or setting them back six months right. or a year or two years. Uh, that has been a debate that's been ongoing. I mean, what is how do you define what a successful attack would? would so that's the difference. In Iraq, you were able to eliminate the entire thing or at least its potential. The one facility, but it was one facility. Right here, you and might that's why be. when people say so, why don't they just go and bomb? Because it is complicated. Right. It would take a lot of resources. But the fact is, the United States has a lot of resources. It is not going to happen, I don't believe. I don't think the military option is one that they're planning for. I do think that they have to be much more uh, specific in, in, in building the capacity if they want Iran to take it seriously so they don't have to use it. But if the Iranians don't believe that the all options, meaning the military option, is on the table, if they don't see the possibility that uh, we could act, and, and you know, for the same thing is true with Putin, who's going now to the Crimean today and going to have a victory parade, uh, you know, it's not a, a superpower in the same sense of, as it once was. And it's not that the West couldn't stand up to them and, and uh, put an end to, to, these, uh, to the threats and to the constant violence that's going on uh, without getting into determining who the government That should be up to the people, but giving them a free chance to, to vote. So, you know, the, the, the warning is important to wake people up, to put things back into perspective, about how serious what we face is and how collective action. And you would have collective action involving the Gulf countries. You would have others who would want to join in, like the countries in Central Asia, because they feel threatened by Iran. Right. By the way, you mentioned Putin. Isn't it becoming more and more obvious that one of the problems is that the Ukrainians themselves don't know what they want in terms in terms of... Uh, you know, be, being part of uh, you know Russian expansionism or not, and once they decide, then it might be easier to figure out you know what direction they should go in. Well, there is a big cultural divide, and it is a uh, uh, you know you have a large population that identifies linguistically, culturally, otherwise with uh, with the Russians, and uh, again, it's not 
these are not simple situations. That otherwise, it would, probably wouldn't arouse, arise, arouse the violence and the reaction that it does. But uh, on the other hand, then there are situations that, that should have been and could have been uh, dealt with. Many people, including the French yesterday, said that they, they believe the failure of the United States to act in Syria gave the license to, to Putin to go and act in the Ukraine. And the argument which we make in the show so often to remind people that everything is interrelated. This is right. globalization that you can't separate. And once you open the floodgates in one place, it's going to open it elsewhere. But did Putin know that, he had this, that he'd have this much support within the Ukraine? It's a big advantage that he has in that well, situation. Yes, because they know the number of, uh, of Russian-speaking people and uh, how much of that support is really his people coming in. I mean, it's, the, the people who are carrying out these acts aren't necessarily Ukrainians. They could be Russians who are, because none of, the, none of them are wearing the badges, and he has a lot I of... I know, but when you see them. the rallies on the street... and oh, that's something else. Of course he knew that they, there's... This yeah, it's, it seems like they're residents. Yes. <laughs> you know. Um, why is the Prime Minister Netanyahu going to Japan? Why not? Sushi. Japan and the United States and Israel have been expanding their relationship. Asia overall has become a major trading partner now rivaling... The United States. We've discussed how China wants to uh, invest in many Israeli companies, That's right? That's right, and so does Japan. And, oh, also? And are, are they bringing a lot of cash to the table? There, are, there is a lot of cash in Japan still. Interesting. And uh, they, they are very interested in Israel's high technology, and Japanese delegations come, uh, not as many as, as the Chinese, but serious. And the um, and this is not new. You know, the, the uh, two prime ministers ago came also to Israel after I had a meeting with him, and we had very serious exchanges about it, and and they looked to Israel. There's a strange relationship because even a place like Japan, you know, anti-Semitic books sell six, seven hundred thousand copies, but it doesn't mean anything. They tell me because everybody thinks sells six, seven hundred thousand copies. Wow. People read them in the streets, and it's not uh, necessarily reflective uh, of uh, you know some anti-Semitic explosion. And in countries like China and, and Japan, that didn't really have histories of it. Of, of anti-Semitism. Right. When you write your book, translate it into Chinese, you have the potential for uh, a bestseller. bestseller right away. A hundred percent. It's unbelievable. Um, should should Susan Rice be meeting with the PA? My question, the bigger question really is, you know, at this point, uh, especially with uh, the Secretary of State, you know, calming things down in terms of his uh, constant travel to Israel and trying to court the PA, should any American officials now be in any type of serious peace negotiations? Well, she's not negotiating. She went there to show the flag to discuss two issues. I think one is the peace process. One is Iran. Uh, she went there to incur, to to encourage the Israelis that uh, the United States was really committed to preventing Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. But it is clear that they also did not agree. That the difference is that the, their definition of a good deal is not what the Israelis' definition. The Israelis say you, no enrichment capacity. They're right. saying, well. Uh, enrichment capacity and a breakout of at least a year, meaning the time from which they make a decision to build a bomb to the time that they can build it. If you remember recently, Secretary Kerry said six to 12 months. The Israelis reacted very strongly. She said, well, at least a year. It has to be more than a year. That's not the, the answer. The answer is shouldn't have the capacity because once you have it, they can cheat, they can do it, they can move it up. Uh, and Israel's position all along is that they can't they shouldn't have the capacity, like Canada, Mexico, others who, who enrich outside, and they have many offers uh, for it. 
and if, if from the United States' own perspective, if you see how the um, head of the Iranian Navy said this week, we can take out an aircraft carrier that's in the Gulf in a minute. Mm-hmm. We can. We're, our goal is to wipe out the U.S. naval uh, resources. That the they challenge the United States all the time, and um, uh, talk about our aircraft carriers as being such easy targets. And there's and there's never a response to it. There's not a response. Uh, to to that or to Class C or to so many other things. And in Vienna next week, they're going to meet again, the P5 plus 1 with the Iranians. They're facing a uh, July deadline, which I think is artificial. And the, the, uh, and, and the more rushed it is, the worse the deal will be, because you won't have time to hammer out a lot of the details unless they just make a framework agreement. Uh, she reiterated the determination of the administration to prevent Iran from acquiring it, uh, I, and she also, of course, spoke about the, the negotiations with the, Netanyahu, with the others, uh, with Lieberman, and in uh, in Ramallah. By the way, I'm getting sick and tired, whether it's Martin Indyk or anybody else, of uh, hearing how Israel is responsible for the breakdown of the Israeli PA talks. Well, this is uh, this interview was deeply disturbing. The one he gave Barnea, which was an unnamed source, but everybody in Washington, and I think if you read it, it becomes clear there are very few people who could be, and that it's been identified as being Indic, who's a special envoy. They say now he's going to resign. We'll find out. He gave a speech last night in which he, he reiterated uh, some of these things. Um, it, it is very disturbing because you, you see these leaks and then they they walk them back but the damage is done once you put this out there this becomes the basis then for the bds advocates the boycott divestment sanctions the anti-israel delegitimizers in especially in europe but even here that they say look here you see who's responsible for the breakdown of talks that a couple hundred units are going to be built in kilo that's really the issue or or that abbas has no intention of, of making a deal, and it becomes more and more clear. Hamas says they're not going to ever accept the quartet things. We don't believe there should be a Jewish state. The TV continues to broadcast kill all the Jews things on children's programs. The, they continue to apply to international conventions, and the former head of the International Criminal Court, Ocampo, warned them yesterday to remember that if they start going into war crimes, that it can be brought against them, against the Hamas and against others, all the rockets that were shot for uh, all of this. And now the analysis that you see is that they're saying you can't force the parties faster than, than uh, what they're ready for or what they're ready to commit to. And I think that Abbas, at 79, looking to the end of this term, is not going to negotiate a deal. If you remember, Arafat walked away from a final deal, too, without right. answering it. When he visited Washington, the president laid out a plan to him, and they never got back to the president on it. <laughs> By the way, our friends at NORPAC say that Iron Dome had a big victory in Congress this week. Iron Dome and uh, had a victory, and the support is continuing. And it's, uh, But the administration did put in for a significant amount of money. They always go in with a lower number, then Congress raises it, and uh, the administration approves it. Interesting how it works. And, and, and finally, um, I was reading about the proposed bill for life sentences in Israel for those responsible for terror. When, when, when a terrorist is responsible for the murder of somebody in Israel, it generally is a life sentence, correct? I mean, is that, is that usually the... Uh, the no, s- not in every case is it a life sentence. It certainly hasn't been, as you see, the people who, who were released. Right, well, that's... You know, I, I always looked at no, that but as... Many, a- them, many of them had multiple sentences. Some have, uh, many, for, for killing, get life sentences, yes. But if you, you look at... Um, uh, 
some of them have multiple life sentences right. for for the crimes they uh, they committed. But Israel, you know, doesn't execute them. Right. That we see. And and we have, uh, by the way, you saw the commitment this week by the Egyptian president to keeping the peace process. And Amri Musa, who was never a great friend, talked about Hamas needing to recognize Israel. So what do you and think of that? Pardon me? What do you think of that? I, I, I was taken aback by that, very honestly. I know him a long time. I was really taken aback, but it's because he flows, follows the flow of what the government and the, the, the direction that this Egyptian government of the generals is taking, and it tells you how that influences uh, what happens, and it's not just true in Egypt. And now Egypt is talking about uh, a pipeline from Egypt to Israel, but not to bring gas to Israel, but to take gas from Israel to their LNG facility in uh, Damietta. So... It's it's a really interesting development in that the the um, uh, that again because it's a good news it gets very little attention. I mean we shouldn't expect any symbolic gestures at this point, right? There's not we're not going to see Egypt and Israel getting together in the near future, right? Well, they are cooperating, and there's a lot of military cooperation, but nothing Sinai publicly, and, right? And uh, the fact that Al Sisi said publicly the guy's going to be the president. That uh, he's going to maintain the peace agreement and right. that he's going to eliminate the Muslim Brotherhood, as a, certainly as a political factor in in Egypt. I mean, I think those are all positive signs. But more importantly, is what they're doing on the ground, which is to actually act against uh, against the terrorists and closing down the tunnels. And that's part of the reason why Hamas fled to the uh, welcoming arms of Mr. Abbas. Uh, is because of the pressures they're, they're feeling from it. Right. But, but if you see how the international community, look, we now find out that um, the chlorine gas is again being used by Syria or continuing to be used. Israelis say that there were 30 times they used it since last August and that uh, you have somewhat close to 10% of the chemical weapons remain behind the enemy lines that they claim they can't get to. Um, and the international community sees that they know that the chlorine gas is being used, and because you know, you can tell there are ways to you have uh, reports of it, and yet the international community doesn't act, and he thinks he can get away with it. He took over homes now, which is a major development. Um, they trapped a number of uh, of uh, the rebels, but the rebels themselves gave it up. Most of them left, and uh, and this is a very significant victory for him. Uh, for the Abbas forces, certainly psychological, but also in terms of uh, the territorial, the geopolitical position he's in. Malcolm is uh, one of the guest speakers Monday, uh, Sunday morning, rather, at the breakfast we spoke of yesterday uh, for the security of Haraz Tim. That's at the home of Rabbi Leaf, 10 o'clock on uh, Sunday morning. I believe that's for men only, and uh, we wish you luck with that this weekend, Mr. Honlock. Thank you very much. It's very important and that men and women support the effort to to uh, uh, pacify how does it seem that we end the violence a lot of progress has been made a lot more progress has to be made this is the biggest national jewish cemetery going back thousands of years where hundreds of thousands of people are buried and the fact that they didn't have access to it for all these years it's the de facto division of jerusalem if we if we lose the access to to our bayit again uh, the police and the prime minister's office and others have done a lot to, to to increase it, but we have to do more. We want to build a visitor center. We want to increase tourism there. That's the way you make sure that it stays. 100%.
Uh, Malcolm, have a wonderful Shabbos. We'll speak again next week. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Friday, it's the weekly update here at JM in the AM. Erev Shabbos Parshas Bahar with candle lighting at 740. Many synagogues begin earlier. Make sure you know when things start where you are. Sunday is Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. If you forgot to count the Omer last evening, it's day 24. Day 24 in the counting of the Omer. If you forgot to count last night, make sure to do so sometime today. Reminder, the Task Force on Children and Families at Risk in Ohel Children's Home presents Protecting Our Families, Forces That Threaten. What are the forces that threaten the fabric of our families, and what can we as parents and members of the community do to combat such influences? Rabbi Eli Mansour and Dr. Yitzhak Schindler will both um, uh, address this topic with greetings by Dr. Marcel Bieberfeld and David Mandel on Tuesday evening. May 13th, beginning at 7.30 at the Safra Synagogue on Ocean Parkway in Brooklyn, New York. It will be followed by a Q&A. Information, you contact our friends at OHEL or the Task Force, uh, also sponsored by MASK and the Itty Libel Helpline. The event is Tuesday night at 1801 Ocean Parkway in Brooklyn, New York. This time each and every Friday, every Arab Shabbos, with great pleasure, we present Rabbi Benjamin Uden spiritual leader of congregation Shomrei Torah in Fairlawn, New Jersey, to address the entire listening audience concerning the Torah portion of the week. Good morning, Rabbi Yudin. Good morning, Nachum. Good Arab Shabbos, everybody. Tomorrow we have the privilege of reading Parshas Bahar. While Parshas Bahar is one of the shortest parshios in the Torah, containing but 57 psukim, it has no less than 24 mitzvos, 7 positive and 17 losase to it. I'd like to focus this morning on the opening Rashi of the Parsha, which enjoys great notoriety. One of the most famous Rashis in the Torah, and when people want to ask in Torah jargon, what does one thing have to do with the other? The Torah, the expression that's used is, Ma'inyan Shmita Itzel Har Sinai. This week's parsha begins with the Torah enumerating the details of the laws of the Shemitah year and the Yovel. Next year, please God, 5775 happens to be a Shemitah year. The law of Shemitah regarding the land is that the land of Israel is to be worked for six years, and on the seventh year it is to be fallow. You are not to work the land. And what is the nature of this land and of this year? It is, number one, a Shabbos Lashem, a Shabbos unto God, and, as we shall see, the no trespassing sign, which one is rightfully able to have on his field for six years, comes down, and all can come in to the next one's field. It is, the produce is ownerless, and... uh, the needy, the animals, all partake of that which is growing on the land. Now, after that, 
The Torah tells us of the laws of Yovel, you count seven Shemitahs, and the 50th year is the Jubilee known as Yovel. The opening verse tells us that God spoke to Moshe, Bahar Sinai, literally on Mount Sinai, and gave him the laws of Shemitah. So Rashi asks, Ma'inyan Shemitah Esahar Sinai? Why does the Torah juxtapose and put Shemitah next to Mount Sinai? After all, Valokol HaMitzvos Nemru MiSinai. Were not all of the mitzvos commanded at Sinai? Ella. Rashi goes on to teach. Mashmita, just as regarding and specifically with the laws of Shemitah. Nemru Kloloseha, its general rules, and Pratoseha, its details, and Diktukeha, its fine points, were stated at Sinai, meaning that in Parshas Mishpatim, in chapter 23, verse 10 and 11, the Torah gives you the general outline of Shemitah, Sheishonim Tizra Esar Tzecha, for six years you shall sow your field, and on the seventh you are to leave it untended and unharvested. And the destitute of your people shall eat, and the wildlife of the field shall eat what is left of them. That is the generality. And in this week's parsha, you have the specifics. And the commentaries go on to say that specifically we know that Shemitah was not repeated regarding the Shemitah of the land, Shemitah's Karka, in the fifth book of the Torah. So all of Shemitah was taught. Shemitah of the land was taught at Sinai. So too, Afkulan, Rashi teaches, so too regarding all the commandments, Kloloseim, their general rules, Tiktukehim, their fine points, were all stated at Sinai. This is what Rashi teaches in the name of the Torah's Kohanim. Now I'd like to ask a very basic question. If we are being taught that at Sinai we didn't just receive the Ten Commandments and we didn't just receive, as there are 613 letters in the Ten Commandments, the general scope of the 613 mitzvahs, but actually received at Sinai all of the details of the mitzvahs, why is it that the Torah chooses to teach us this point in conjunction with the mitzvah of Shemitah? Why not teach it to me in conjunction with the mitzvah of Hashavas Aveda, returning a lost object, the mitzvah of tefillin. There are so many, so many other mitzvahs that the Torah could have chosen and said, Ta-da! Just as this was given with all its details, so to all the others. Why is Shemitah 
the poster mitzvah that we learn from it to all others. And I'd like to suggest that the mitzvah of Shemitah contains, we are all aware that there are ostensibly two categories of mitzvos. There are mitzvos that are man to God, and mitzvos that are man to man. And there's a third component, mitzvos bein adam la'atzmo, mitzvos between man and himself, the development of his character. And indeed, the Gemara in Bavakama 30a, when the Gemara says in the teaching of Rabbi Yehuda, Haiman, the boy one who wishes to be devout, he should fulfill and be very careful regarding the laws of Nizikin, damages. Rava says, the words of Tractate Ovos, Perke Ovos, that we are studying now between Pesach and Shavuos. And Amri Law, and the third opinion is Mili de Brachos, the laws of the Gemara Brachos. And the Marsha says these three opinions reflect the three divisions and aspect of mitzvos. Rabbi Yehuda, who says that the one who wants to be pious should be especially careful in the zikin. This is bin odom lachaveiro, man to man. The one who says mili de avos, rava who says you should be careful regarding pirke avos. This is odom liatzmo, and the third opinion of mili de brachos is bin odom lamakom. Shemitah, my friends, contains all three. Shemitah, as the Torah says, is Shabbos Lashem. You work the land for six years, and the seventh year, what do you do? You're not off to Acapulco, and you're not going to Puerto Rico. You're going to the base Medrash. Says the Eben Ezra in his commentary, that just as the essence of Shabbos is to be that day where the Jew is able to focus on spirituality, so to imagine the concept of a sabbatical is one that we are familiar with only regarding, forgive me, college professors. And we had it first. We had it that every Jewish farmer living and working in the land of Israel, had a sabbatical every seventh year. For what purpose? For going to the base Medrash and learning and developing his skills, his acumen in Torah. Amazing. So the first aspect of Shemitah is that it is Adam la Makom, man to God. In addition, this man to God is that he develops an incredible sense of emuna and bitachon, of trust in God. The idea being that just as six days he works and then is Shabbos, and so he is reminded as God the Creator, so too he works the land for six years and allows the land 
not to work in the seventh year, acknowledging, as the Torah says in this week's parsha, that it all comes from God. The land belongs to God. The produce comes with His blessing. And as the Torah says, don't worry about what you're going to eat. God is going to literally send His blessing, whether it is quantitatively or qualitatively, there's going to be the Jew connecting and reinforcing his belief in God. Shemitah represents man to man because the Torah tells us in the fifth book that in addition to Shemitah, of the land, there's also Shemitah's Ksofim, that every seventh year the debts that are due one another are cancelled. And the Torah says, if one Jew comes to another and is a few more months left, or a few more weeks left, to the um, year when Shemitah will then go and cancel the debt, so a person might say to themselves, wait a minute, I'm not lending the money, because after all, I might not see this money again. The Torah simply says, that is called bliyaal. That's an evil thought. Incredible is the great responsibility one for another, bein adam lechaveiro, put into the laws of Shemitah. And finally, bin Adam Leatzmo, how, as the Chinuch says in Mitzvah 84, the purpose of Shemitah is to refine the individual in terms of his character, in terms of his generosity of spirit, and not to be a stingy individual. So Shemitah has all three. And therefore, I'd like to suggest that just as Shemitah has all three, so too, regarding all mitzvos, there is much more than what appears on the surface. There's more than what meets the eye. And so, something like, for example, the recitation of a bracha. So, we would imagine, okay, this is a mitzvah and the fulfillment of man to God. And ostensibly, you are right. Turn, my friends, to the Gemara in Brachos 35b at the beginning of the 6th chapter and Rab Chanina Bar Papa teaches at the top of Lamid Hei Amid Beis Bracha If a person benefits from this world without reciting a blessing He's stealing literally from God and Knesset Yisrael and from the Jewish people. Now he's stealing from God because after all God gives you and wants you to benefit from this world only after you have recited a bracha. But, the Gemara continues, and Rashi explains that if a Jew is negligent in the recitation of a bracha, so says Rashi, why are you stealing from Knesset Yisrael? Shekishechotu haperos lokin. The quality of the fruit, the taste and every other aspect of the fruit is not only dependent on all the variables that the farmer will tell you, but it's also dependent on the variable of do the Jewish people recite blessings. So our 
having a connection, man to God, with brachos, is also very strong, man to man. When a Jew puts on tefillin, what could be a greater mitzvah, man to God, and you are right, comes along the Rambam, in the end of chapter 4 of Hilchos tefillin, and he says that when a Jew is privileged to don his tefillin, kidushasan gedolahi. The sanctity of the tefillin is very great. And as long as the Jew puts on his tefillin, he then becomes a greater onav, a sense of modesty, yirei shamayim, reverence for God. And he is elevated. Now this elevated state is not just for him, but Baruch Hashem, the Kedusha is nispashet. It spreads to the Jew next to him as well. And so it is that a beautiful Jew whose name is Aaron Breuer from Hungary says that he was very close to the prior Belzer Rebbe, Zechat Sadik Levracha. And he found an Aveda and he was about to return the Aveda. And the Rebbe stopped him and the Rebbe said, Wait, say L'Shem Yichud. Say that you are about to fulfill a biblical mitzvah, namely of Hashavas Aveda. Now, Hashavas Aveda is clearly man to man. But the idea is that there's much more to mitzvahs. And that's what we learn from Shemitah. Shemitah teaches us that Shemitah's got it all. Shemitah's got man to God. Shemitah's got man to man. Shemitah's got man to himself. And we should realize, wow, how privileged we are in the performance of mitzvahs, because that's what we're learning from Shemitah, that you should analyze and revel and be so excited in the performance of mitzvahs, because there's much more that what meets the eye, what appears to be only category number one, man to God, really has as well the man to man. And what appears to be only man to man also has not only to himself, but man to God. The privilege of performing mitzvos is what emanates from the very first Rashi of Parshas Pahar. Shabbat Shalom to all.
Jam in the AM. Quarter before nine o'clock. Hey, I want to wish a mazel tov to um, Aaron Simcha Futterman, whose bar mitzvah takes place this Shabbos at the Young Israel of Far Rockaway. And a very special mazel tov to his parents. Sorry about that. His parents are Orly and Yassi. The uh, bar mitzvah takes place at the Yisrael Far Rockaway. Mazal tov to Aaron Simcha Futterman. Also, want to wish a mazel tov to Yonatan Shlomo Katz, who is uh, becoming a, a bar mitzvah at Congregation Or HaTorah in Bergenfield tomorrow morning to uh, Ari and Dina Katz. And uh, their families, a very special mazel tov from all of us here at JM in the AM. Anybody in the Camp Misora family, I'm sure you join me in wishing the Katz family a very special mazel tov. Well, he's the number one kosher wine sommelier in the world. And we have the privilege of calling him our kosher wine consultant, the one, the only, Jay. Book spam. And why am I on this morning? Well, we found out that today's a big day. We wanted to wish you a mazel tov. Oh, thank you. By the way, uh, any you end, not, I shouldn't say ended up because it was your priority and Kolaka votes you on that. Uh, you were home for Pesach, correct? You bet, baby. So when you're home, you don't come across as varied uh, the number of wines that you would if you were a sommelier professionally at some Pesach program, correct? No, not correct. Oh, what do you have? Come to my come to my cellar. You know, people ask me all the time, Jay. You know, I'm having a bar mitzvah. I want to. I'm having twelve people over for Shabbos. Do, wait a Can second. You today, buy me a case of wine. <laughs> and I say, I say, of course, it's illegal. You can't. You know, you have to be licensed for us to sell you wine. And so I say, but here's what you do. You can have the wine for free, but you have to come to my house and take it yourself from my cellar. Do they say it in that whiny voice that you just uh, exhibited on the air? Yes, yes, they do. Like, I hope I'm not bothering you, you know. Are you inviting now anybody in our community who knows anybody. We, who knows where your garage is to just show anybody. up and start it's taking wine? I'm not telling that. <laughs> I'm not telling you that. But no, if you want to come and share a bottle of wine with me, color code anytime you want. Anyway, today the reason we, uh, yeah, we, we the reason we asked Jay uh, to join us today is because today is National Muscat Day, and Jay, you'll uh, you'll recall that very recently I became a Muscat fan. You remember this? You remember this news, Jay? Yeah. You remember the news? The orange, the orange Muscat. Yeah. You very proud to be my wine educator and see me actually drink an orange Muscat. <laughs> we got to get you now to the next step, which is some dry wines. Well, Orange Muscat would be considered the most high-profile of the non-dry? No. I mean, I've, I've been... No, the most high-profile of the non-dry is probably a, a Sauterne from France. Oh, my gosh. And the most I've done is, like, Black Muscat. I'm not ready for Sauterne yet. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm very far away from what you've described. By the way, I wanted to make a point before we talk about uh, uh, kosher wine in a second. Um, you've been on Naomi Nachman show a million times. Right. She's well, she's doing well. A million's an exaggeration. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Naomi's show is from Australia today, but I don't want anyone to think because it's Shabbos in Australia now. You've been in these situations, Jay, where it's already sh- when you've been traveling, it's already Shabbos for you where you are, and for us, it's Friday morning. Right. Right. But I don't want anyone to think, of course, that the show's being done on Shabbos. The show is pre-recorded in Australia. You got that? I got that. All right. So nine o'clock in just a few minutes. 
Naomi Nachman will be doing a show pre-recorded in Australia. And you've been to Australia, right? I actually, it's one of the few countries in the world that I have not been to. Why did I think you were there? You were never. I don't know, Australia. but it's you know I've been. In fact, in a couple of weeks I'm going to China again. Wow. <laughs> uh, but Australia, and it's not that far. But Australia is not one of the countries I've been. to. Hey, are you guys Walder? Do you distribute that or not? Yes, we do. Jay, I have become addicted to that vanilla vodka thing. Ooh, that's delicious. I I, 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 sh- I should be careful. I shouldn't say addicted. Uh, that's not a good yeah, word. That's not a good. But I have. It, it's a par of drink, right? Yeah. Yeah. Vanilla vodka from Walder, right? That's what they call it. Yes, and it's so rich. You know how poo-pooed I am about what I'm about to tell you. I don't usually like to suggest putting ice in your, right. you know, spirits but I've of done. any kind, wine or spirits. But I've done. But in this case, right. it's so rich and thick and wonderful. Correct. It goes great with cubes. And I have great. done it. I have done that. I, I, I must be as sophisticated as you. And by the there way, you know. and by the way, very cool bottle. Very cool. Very yeah. cool bottle. Are you Marat or not? Yes. I have gotten in. You know what I've gotten into from Marat? You're going to be shocked when I tell you this one. Go ahead. Have you tried the espresso liqueur? It's brand new. I'm, I'm surprised that you're so edgy. Well, Leo, Leo, for, Leo on West Englewood Avenue made sure to send it home as a little gift for Stacy Siegel. And forget Stacy, I've gotten into it like crazy. Be careful, but yeah, it's great stuff. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's great stuff. It's unbelievable, yeah. and I'm not even a coffee drinker, and I like it. You know, it, it's it's. I don't know if you remember this, but. Um, the OU used to be on, uh, what's that famous uh, coffee liqueur from Mexico? Um, coffee liqueur from Mexico? Uh, I don't know. I'm no expert on this. I have a, anyway, kosher, I have a kosher wine a, sommelier a, that that, that, that a very famous it. coffee liqueur from Mexico that lost its certification, uh, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago. Yeah. And this is really a great uh, alternative. In fact, it's a better alternative. Oh, well, there you go. Finally, Jay, today is National Muscat Day. And the question is, how do we celebrate? That's the big question. And, and by the way, how did May 9th become National Muscat Day? Why is that? Does anybody I, know? I, I, yeah, I called somebody up and I said, let's make May 9th. <laughs> yeah, that's what happened? It came straight from your office? So we contacted you because we heard it was National Muscat Day, and in reality it started at your desk? <laughs> yeah, right. I don't get that. I don't get so that So somehow, somehow May 9th became National Muscat Day. We said we would not let it go by without acknowledging it with Jay on the air, especially with all the orange muscat conversation we've had over the last uh, few months. Um, anything else you could suggest? I know that orange muscat's among the newest. Is there any other? Oh, my goodness. Any other? There's a new muscat. Uh, there's a red and white muscat from Australia. So not Naomi Nachman. Uh, would love that. The Teal Lake? Yeah, Moscata di Aussie. Literally just came out? Yeah. Well, the new vintage just came out. Right. And, of course, there's the original Moscato. Everybody thinks that the original Moscato is the Bartonura, and it is the biggest and, you know, certainly the best-selling, and some people say the best-tasting, but the original Moscato is the Rashi Moscato. That's the one. That was the first one to hit the market. That's exactly right. Is that going back 15 years? At least 16, wow. maybe 18. Unbelievable. Well, Jay, and you know what's interesting also? that yeah. Here's a little uh, tidbit for your next cocktail party to share with your, uh, with your friends and family. Moscato was kind of invented by people like us, the Jewish community, to satisfy the semi-sweet you know, interests of, of the kosher 
wine consumer. Right. And it's only late, you know, and this was way before the general market was interested in the Moscato and the Muscat type of semi-dries. And then it's, that's why, it be, apparently that's why we became the leader, because we had it first. And we did it only for this little tiny community, and now more than 70% of all Bartonor Moscato, maybe as much as some people say 85%, is sold to the not, you know, such a general population. I, you know where I... happens to be the... Los Angeles Dodgers official Moscato. Unbelievable. I saw it in one of those massive, you know, um, what do you call Costco? What kind of store is that? Not a superstore. What do they call it? You know, one of the Big box store. Big box store. I saw it in one of those stores. Anyway, here's what we're going to do. Um, you will send a gift package, including a Bartoner Moscato corkscrew, to the winner of today's contest. All we're asking people to do is tweet at NahumSiegelNet. How are you celebrating National Moscato Day? That's what we want, Jay. We want people to tell us how they are celebrating National Moscato Day. It's, again, at Nahum Siegel Net. And anybody who tweets between now and candlelighting time is eligible. And the best answer, based on the judges of our committee, the best answer will receive a gift pack, which will include that Bartonero Moscato corkscrew. Are you willing do to? I get to? Do I get to, uh, you know, give my two cents on who the best answer is? We haven't decided that yet. The judges have. <laughs> okay. First, the judges have. By the have, way, there is a new Juness Pink Moscato that everybody should check out before Shabbos if you can get to your store before then. Boy, you guys are just. You're, yeah, you're producing this stuff uh, faster than well, anything. Yeah, and there's, there's also a wonderful Israeli Moscato called Muscat Hamburg. Oh, by the way, that Muscat Hamburg is unbelievable. We had that around Purim time. I think I told you this. We had that around Purim time. It's unbelievable. That is a and what's interesting, point. it's kind of like, um, just to give you, you know, again, more education here, because that's, you know, I love this stuff. Muscat Hamburg is a variation of the Muscat grape. So, for example, there are uh, Golden Delicia apples, and then, and then right. there are, um, I don't know, uh, you know, another kind of but apple. But Muscat Hamburg is officially what brand? What is that? Sion. Sion, right. I didn't even realize that, I didn't even realize I was affiliated with you. It's an amazing job. I haven't even discussed it with you. I got to talk more about that. All right, anybody who wants to win, tell us how you're celebrating National Moscato Day uh, at Nachum Siegel Net at Nachum Siegel Net. Jay, another thanks. Israeli Moscato is Moscato di Carmel, by the way. There you go. In case you want Israeli, you know. Jay, thank you. And as we always say on National Moscato Day, Mazel Tov to you. Thank you so Very. much. And model up to the winner. Yeah, whoever it'll be. We'll whoever let you, it'll be. We will let you know. There he is, the one and only Jay Booksbound. Same time, second Shabbos. Candle lighting at 740 on this era of Shabbos at JM in the AM. For you. Oh, it's time to say good Shabbos. Because all your work is done. Gonna spend the day together with Holy One, say special blessing on a cup that's filled with wine. Man and his creator, it's a very special sign. Your candles will be burning, they'll fill your home with light. Singing songs of Shabbos. Well into the night So throw away your hammer There's nothing left to do Go on home and find a gift That's waiting there for you 
Our brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial, and around the world on the web, jmnam.org. And that will wrap up another great week for us here at JMNAM. If you missed the Israel Memorial Day program with Robert Katz or the Israel Yom Hatzma'ut, 66th birthday celebration with myself and Mayor Weingarten. Make sure to check out the archive section of jmtheam.org. Naomi Nachman is next. The program was done from Australia, but it's not being done live. Don't panic. It's Shabbos there now. A pre-recorded program done by Naomi during her visit this week to Australia. That's coming up next on our stream at jmtheam.org. I've run me tomorrow night at 10 with Saturday Night Siegel. 7 a.m. Sunday for Matis with JM Sunday. Make sure to be on our stream all day long, all through the weekend at jmnam.org. We're back Monday. Make sure to join us. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. Till Monday, Nahum Siegel reminding you, remember to pass, live the present, and trust the future.